Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. How do you teach an audio production class if people risk spreading COVID-19 every time they touch the controls? Bill Crabtree, a professor in the Recording Industry Program, found a way. There's still a hands-on component to his classes, but he has devised methods of remote instruction with a combination of devices to create a classroom experience that lowers the risk of spreading the disease. Why remote learning sometimes sounds better after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. More than 6,050 MTSU students are included on the latest Dean's List for their academic achievements during the fall 2020 semester. This new list, alphabetized by home county, state, and surname, is the final compilation of the names and hometowns of students earning the Dean's List distinction for the fall by the MTSU Records Office. To qualify for the Dean's List, a student must maintain a current semester grade point average of 3.5 or above and earn at least 12 semester hours. The Dean's List notation applies only to undergraduate students. MTSU updates the lists after each semester ends and student grades are posted. And an MTSU ROTC alum has become the U.S. Army Reserve's first cyber officer to be promoted to Brigadier General. Robert Powell, Jr. graduated from MTSU's College of Liberal Arts in 1991 with a bachelor's degree in international relations. He was promoted from colonel to the one-star rank of Brigadier General during a ceremony on December 15th at Fort Gordon, Georgia. With the promotion, Powell will serve as the Deputy Commanding General Cyber of the 335th Signal Command Theater. He recently mobilized to support the Cyber National Mission Force, U.S. Cyber Command at Fort Meade, Maryland. Powell, who came to MTSU from Shelbyville Central High School, becomes the 17th General Officer of the 50-year history of MTSU's Army Reserve Officer Training Corps program. He started his Army career as an armor officer with the 1st Cavalry Division at Fort Hood, Texas, and joined the Army Reserve in 2004 as a military intelligence officer. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Bill, thank you for being our guest, taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me. When the campus went all virtual right after spring break, how did you think you were going to conduct class? (laughs) Well, it was kind of a panic at first. We weren't sure what we were going to do. And uh, we started talking myself among uh, with our department chair. Uh, John Merchant and with uh, many of my colleagues about what we would do and in the spring we just kind of uh, uh, students students had already learned about equipment and studios but honestly what happened in the spring we knew so little about COVID that um, our facilities were all closed so what we wound up doing was um, uh, students wound up doing a lot of work from home, uh, recording uh, remotely from home. The main class I was teaching at the time was uh, my master's uh, level course. And in that class, students work with professional musicians in the studio. So many of these professional musicians have recording setups at home. So what we did is we connected the students to the pro players in Nashville and they produced remotely 
of the internet and the the drummer would record his tracks at, at, at his studio at his house and send them to the to the uh, student and the student would forward those over to the guitarist and he would put his part on and things would get layered a little at a time. It's sort of like a, a star like Streisand or Tony Bennett making a duets album. So-and-so records his part uh, like in New York and she's in LA recording her, her track. That's exactly, well, that's exactly right. You know, a lot of stuff does get done that way nowadays. Uh, in in the pro world, somebody's in LA and they put down a track and they send it back to Nashville and uh, other tracks go down and then it gets sent off to somebody else for mixing. And so we kind of simulated that environment in the spring. Um, but that's very different than what we wound up doing in the fall. So how did you adapt for the fall semester? Well, yeah, in the fall semester, we had the summer to prepare. So we knew that we knew we were going to be remote in the fall pretty early on in the summer. And so, uh, and we also knew that students had to learn the equipment in the studios from the ground up. They had to learn to run and operate the studio. And um, the control rooms are fairly small. So we couldn't have the whole class in the control room altogether. So we just came up with this idea that we would uh, put together a remote video and audio system where um, multiple cameras in the control room focused on different aspects of the studio. Um, and uh, we had the, we got these little uh, remote switchers to feed into Zoom. So what we wound up doing is I taught my class from Studio E in this case we have several studios, but I was in Studio E and the students were home on Zoom, right? So I could switch and show any aspect of the studio using the multi-camera system and feed that over Zoom so they would watch. And then we also scheduled all of the students for a small group um, hands-on labs with our graduate assistants. So each week students would attend a lecture with me over Zoom and then they would come in uh, two or three at a time and work with a graduate assistant to go over the equipment and get some hands-on time there. And then of course they had their regular studio time in the evening and on weekends. Did all of your students have uh, access to the technology to do what they needed to do remotely? I mean you would expect recording industry majors to be tech savvy, but given the digital divide, not every student has the same amount of money as every other student. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, they didn't need any additional technology other than a computer and internet, right? So all they needed to attend the class was computer and internet. And everybody had that. And if they, in the case that they, if they didn't, they could go to the library on campus and watch the lecture. And of course, all the lectures were recorded as well, so they could go back and review them um, after class. We'll take a break right here. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the Record. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. 
UIH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle East Center at MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Bill Crabtree is a professor in the Department of Recording Industry who, uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, found himself having to uh, restructure, if you will, the recording studio so that students could learn remotely and still have uh, a safe hands-on experience. Uh, I understand most video switchers don't work very well with Zoom. Why is that? You know, I'm an audio professor professor and professional, and I'm not a video, real video tech savvy person. And that was kind of my summer to get up to speed on video formats and video resolutions and aspect ratios and so forth to figure out why, what would work with uh, Zoom. And as it turns out, a company called Blackmagic was uh, had just released uh, a little video switcher called a Blackmagic AT ATEM Mini Pro, and it's just a inexpensive switcher, and it shows up when you connect it to your computer like a web camera. So Zoom sees it as a web camera. So there was a bit of trial and error and trying different things and trying different boxes and so forth, but we wound up going with the, the Blackmagic switcher, and it worked great. Uh, it connects to, the, to Zoom as a video camera, and I just switch it so that um, I've got multiple cameras that I can feed into, into Zoom with the touch of a button. For the cameras, uh, we were trying to figure out what would work best, and I tried a few different cameras, and it turned out that the best camera for this use was just um, an iPhone. So we purchased several iPhones for each studio without a, um, a cell plan, and we just used them as the camera. And then there's a little app that we got so that the iPhone outputs a clean signal. We connect that to the switcher. So we wind up with three or four iPhones around the uh, console in various parts of the studio. And they work great because the iPhone is really uh, tolerant to low-level lighting conditions. They autofocus. Uh, all of our faculty could quickly understand how to use them because everybody's got a smartphone nowadays. And uh, it was a lot easier than learning, uh, you know, a new video camera and all of that. That was the most amazing part of it to me, that something as ubiquitous as an iPhone could become part of this more complicated setup. But then the photos and videos from iPhones have improved exponentially over the years with each new version of it that, that, that comes out. So I guess that really does make sense when you think about it. 
Yeah, there's a little adapter that you have to buy to connect to your iPhone um, so that it outputs an HDMI to an HDMI cable. And those mm -hmm. are like $25 for that adapter. And so we put two iPhones in each studio. And we did this not just in the one studio that I was teaching in. I researched it and figured it out over the course of the summer. But we wound up doing it in uh, Studio D and Studio E as well as Studio A and Studio B. So we had, oh, I don't know, four or five different teachers using this system in various classes. Uh, so each studio got two iPhones plus an extra input so that faculty could bring their own iPhone and connect it to have a third camera. And then the fourth input on the switcher was the uh, computer so that we could demonstrate anything going on on the computer uh, the digital audio workstation, things like that, we can switch to that as well. Or just a PowerPoint slideshow. Most of us who use it know Zoom audio leaves something to be desired. Uh, I interviewed your colleague Michael Hansen some time ago for a story about his critical listening classes, and he said something about listen to. Tell us about listen to. He was thrown into the deep end last spring, having to teach critical listening over Zoom, as you know, and he figured out listen to. It's a separate application plugin that allows you to stream higher quality audio to a website separate from Zoom. So we would set up listen to to stream the console output separate and independent from Zoom. So whatever I was mixing or whatever I was working on, that would be streamed to listen to. Students could plug their headphones into their computer and listen to that higher resolution than the audio over Zoom. But my voice that I would be talking to them, that would be coming over Zoom. And you know, in retrospect, the hardest part of this whole thing in the studio with multiple speakers, console, all the audio routing, listen to and zoom audio and all that. The audio part of this turned out to be the biggest challenge. The video was cool and but fairly straightforward. You don't have to worry about feedback and things like that. But with the audio system, it you would be delays and echoes that could happen or feedback and things like that. So that was the part that was, um, in some ways, the most challenging. Networks, radio networks, television networks have come to accept since the pandemic the fact that the remote interviews they do are not necessarily going to have pristine audio. There are going to be dropouts. I mean, you've seen it on television 24-7 news, cable news channels and such. And they have just come to accept that basically as a, a fact of life. But when you're teaching something like critical listening, you're trying to get your students to tune their ears to what it should sound like and how to get it to sound like what it should sound like. And that calls for a greater degree of specificity than just sitting in front of your TV set or listening to a car radio. That's right. So, you know, typically what would come over Zoom would be what we call low sample rate, low bit audio, and it's just not of high quality, it may not even be in stereo. Whereas listen to, the sender has the ability to determine what the audio quality is, whether it's somewhat lower quality or whether it's full resolution or even high definition, high resolution, 96 kilohertz. That does become taxing on the connection on the student's end. 
So we had to find a compromise that would work for the students depending on their internet connection and just because we can stream at 96K from campus doesn't mean the students can receive that. So we would get a little bit of issues from time to time, but for the most part, it worked pretty well. But because they're learning in order to go into the profession, it's a heck of a lot more complex than just knowing the difference between a WAV file and an MP3. Yep, that's right. Absolutely. We'll take another break right here. We'll return in just a bit. This is MTSU on the record. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about audio production and how Bill Crabtree, a professor in the recording industry program, has adapted studios at uh, the College of Media and Entertainment so that his students can learn remotely and have a hands-on component. It's an adaptation in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. How do you arrange the small hands-on groups? How many total students, first of all, do you have in these classes? And then how do you decide who to put in what group and what graduate assistant to pair them up with? Uh, it's kind of like a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> you know, you move one person and it affects somebody else. So it's just a lot of going back and forth. So we had to start with the available hours in the studio. So there are limited hours available in the studio, uh, especially during the day because classes are going on. So we would start with those. And then we had the available graduate assistants, and we had to determine what slot could be covered by each grad assistant based on the grad assistant's classes they were taking and their availability. So we would fill all of the slots with one grad assistant. And then the first day of class, we just had students sign up in groups of three for all of the available slots. Well, we created more available slots than we actually needed so that there was some flexibility for the students to sign up at a time that would work for their schedule. And each student had a slot, a two-hour slot, each week. So they would have the one-hour lecture and the two-hour lab each week. When they were filling out their schedule forms, obviously they didn't anticipate anything like this was going to happen. So <laughs> not well, everybody is in the same place at the same time. Yeah, when we scheduled the classes, there weren't labs scheduled for them. Although it is something that we're going to adapt in the future. Believe me, every, I think I speak for everyone in our department that we will be thrilled to come back to campus and work with students. What we really enjoy doing is working with students and working in creative groups, working with musicians. I mean, it's a collaborative program. But there are some things that we've learned from this. Necessity is the mother of invention. Well, we had to do this, so it required us to think outside the box 
and to think of new ways of teaching and new ways of doing things. And I think there's some takeaways that we've learned, things that we can adapt into our courses in the future. We're actually building two new studios right now on campus to replace Studios D&E, and we're gonna incorporate some of these things into the new studio design so that in the event there's anything like this, and again, again, we can deal with it, but also so that we can make recordings in our studios to post online for students to watch after class and so that we can display things better in the classroom and things like that. So for recording industry majors in the future, just like biology has an in-classroom experience in a lab and chemistry has an in-classroom experience in a lab, so recording industry could have an in-classroom experience in a lab. That's right. And, you know, we've always had lab time for students, but that was what we call just studio booking. They would book the studio on their own and just go in and work on their own. We didn't have labs with a scheduled lab assistant, but I think that we're going to continue doing that in the future. It does take a little bit more work on the scheduling side and on our graduate assistant side, but you know, thanks to our graduate program and our graduate assistants, we're able to do that. And you know what? The grad assistants learn too. How has all this affected the master's program that connects students with professional musicians? Similar, but different. Now, the MFA we have, over the past several years, we would take uh, our class of graduate students up to Nashville, and we would book a professional studio in Nashville. And the students would record with professional musicians and that we would record songs that are written by our undergraduate songwriting students from our our commercial songwriting program. So that's something that Odie Blackman and I put together. They go into a professional environment, uh, a completely unknown environment that they've never worked in before. They have to work with professionals and it's very real world. So we wanted to continue that. Well, It didn't make sense for us to book a studio and take two classes of students up to a studio. So what we did is we invited the session musicians down to campus. So they come down to our studios where we're already set up with the video cameras and so forth and Zoom. And we ran the recording sessions. um, And uh, this semester, it was Michael Hansen's class that did that. And we'll be doing it again next semester um, with the pro players here on campus, all the songwriters attend the recording sessions virtually over Zoom, and we have three MFA students with the teacher in the control room during the recording session. All the session players, they have to wear a mask during the session, and they're in isolation booths anyway in the recording studio. So essentially, we are able to maintain proper distancing and safety in order to uh, run a recording session. That's not ideal, but it worked. Back in the studio at MTSU, uh, who does all the cleaning of the equipment after the hands-on groups? I mean, you have to, I know from being in radio for all those many years, there used to be idiots who would actually spray Lysol on the microphone and the engineers would just want to throttle them. 
I mean, seriously, and that was way before COVID. We're talking about the common cold and all that kind of thing. So you want to be able to clean the equipment without ruining the equipment. That's right. And uh, that was definitely something that we talked about quite a bit, but Dale Brown, our uh, facilities manager, and uh, Alton Dellinger, who uh, they both are our system engineers who maintain our equipment um, in the department. They came up with a system and the, the main thing that we were concerned about were the vocal microphones. That's where someone is singing, they can't wear a mask, they're singing right at the mic. And so switching mics between sessions, one session into the next, that was a real problem. So they came up with a protocol that if a microphone is used by anyone, a student or faculty in a recording session, they after the session, they put the mic in a plastic bag and they put it in a bin. And at the end of each day, the shop would come by, pick up the mics and clean them and return them back into our mic collection. Um, the rest of the uh, equipment, such as the, the tactile surfaces and things like that, those are cleaned each day by our maintenance staff and, again, um, by some of our grad assistants. People who don't have an appreciation for how delicate and how expensive some audio equipment can be could uh, take things a little farther. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not like the old days where it, it would just you know, some idiot would spill Pepsi into, <laughs> into, the, into the mixing board with the slide pots and everything, and it would just be a complete mess. Back in the day, uh, when, when smoking was so much more common than it is nowadays, people used to smoke at the console, and you would go into studios, and there'd be ashes all over the console, and the whole room would smell like cigarettes, but times have changed quite a bit. We, we don't allow food or drink or smoking in any of our facilities, so there's that. But just the tactile surfaces, we had to clean those fairly regularly. Bill Crabtree, thank you for your uh, ingenuity and your adaptability. We look forward to a day when uh, the protocol restrictions will no longer be necessary, but uh, we're glad that it hasn't impeded our students' ability to obtain an education and uh, get out into the recording industry field and have a career. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice meeting you, and it's a pleasure being on. Thank you. We'll be right back. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. Terra wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to Terra, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. For high school and transfer students interested in pursuing the sciences, 
MTSU's College of Basic and Applied Sciences and Admissions Office will offer three in-person Saturday recruiting events in January and February. Advising Manager Jennifer Danilo shares more. The College of Basic and Applied Sciences at MTSU will be hosting three different CBAS Saturday events during the spring 21 semester. We'd love students to pick one date and come visit with us. They will spend about an hour and a half with the areas that they are interested in, and on each date we'll offer opportunities at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. so that each student can visit with up to two departments on the date that they choose to visit with us. These visits are focused on academics and facilities, which are two very important things for students to hear, see, and understand when making this important decision. Department chairs want to take this opportunity to talk to students about our programs, show off all that is innovated in the departments, and then discuss ongoing research and show off facilities. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.